Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Despite its humble beginnings, the Persian Empire would become the largest political force in world history. Although remembered for its lavish building projects and continuous cultural achievements, the Persian Empire would not have been possible if not for the efforts of one man. Known as Cyrus the Great, this ruler reshaped the world and built the first empire to rule over three river valleys simultaneously. From the Nile of Egypt to the Indus of South Asia, Cyrus was one of the only people to truly be deserving of the title Great. On this episode, we discuss Cyrus's rise to power and the birth of the Persian Empire. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season two of the series, we're discussing the great empires of the ancient world, the forces that created and destroyed them, and the lasting legacies they leave behind that help shape our modern age. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, on my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, and your home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Today we'll be discussing the beginning of the mighty Persian Empire, whose borders would ultimately stretch to not one, not two, but three continents, making it the single largest force in the history of the ancient world. The borders of the Persian Empire were vast. They encompassed everything we've talked about so far, the Mesopotamian River Valley, as well as the Nile River Valley in Egypt. But the Persian Empire stretched even further than that. It went all the way to the Indus River in India, and even touched the European continent, an imperial force so large and so powerful, and a worldview so expansive that it contained not one, not two, but three river valleys simultaneously. That is an amazing feat. And when you consider an imperial domain that large, there has to be more than a few lasting legacies left that we can still see affecting the region today. The Persian Empire is vast. The Persian Empire is enormous. The history of the Persian Empire is a glorious one. But I don't want to get too much into the great details of how Persia became the mighty force that it was by the time we see the rise of the Greek city-states. What I do want to talk about in today's episode, though, is the individual person who took Persia from a relatively small political domain to literally nearly the size it was at its completion. The person we're talking about is named Cyrus the Great. Now, we see a lot of people in the ancient world wanting to add the epithet the Great after their names. I really believe, though, Cyrus is one of the few people who actually deserve that nickname. What Cyrus does is unseen 
in the history of the ancient world. He's a creative person. He's an innovative person. He's a brave person. He's an intelligent person. He follows all of the lessons seemingly learned in the past from different kings and emperors. And he expands on them and he pushes his own limits, which allows his empire to become the largest of the ancient world, not knowing that it's just the beginning and it's only going to get bigger. So before we talk about Cyrus, let's have a quick refresher on what's going on in the region, where the power of the region lies, and how Cyrus's world fits into that. At this time, there are really three major powerful empires in the ancient Near East. The first and the largest is known as the Median Empire. The second is known as the Lydian Empire. And then in the middle, although not the biggest, certainly the richest, and certainly the most powerful, is the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Now, we talked about the Neo-Babylonian Empire in our previous episode of Wartime. We talked about Nabopolassar wrestling his reign away from the Assyrians. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar making the Neo-Babylonian Empire a very large and very impressive imperial structure. And we left Neo-Babylonian Empire with a discussion of a man named Nabonidus, uh, who many consider to be the man, the king, the emperor who brought the Neo-Babylonian Empire down by his own careless actions. But we'll pick up with Nabonidus in a few minutes. But this is the basic status quo in the ancient world at the time. Egypt certainly still exists, but it's in a weakened form. The Lydians exist in what we think of as today Turkey, what we in, in history will call Anatolia, or Asia Minor. Uh, and the Medians, a group we really haven't talked about at all yet, were the crown of having the largest land-based empire at the time. They stretch from the east, from the Iranian plateau, through the northern reaches of Mesopotamia, all the way west to the border of the Lydian Empire, with the Neo-Babylonian Empire to their south. Now, we're going to have to have this discussion based on a place we really haven't talked about yet here on this season of wartime, but a very important place nevertheless. And that place is what we would consider today to be the nation of Iran. At the time, the Iranian plateau, maybe a better way to say it at the time, uh, is a divided place. There is one major power, the Medes, the Median Empire, but there are many smaller regional kingships on the Iranian plateau as well. None of them are especially powerful. If they do battle, it tends to be amongst themselves. But the Medians are the top dog in the east. Now, they've always played an interesting role in the larger development of the Mesopotamian world because they've basically, as far as we've been talking, always been present in some way, shape, or form. But because they live to the east, because they're content to rule over the Iranian plateau, they very infrequently involve themselves in a drastic way in the affairs of Mesopotamia. It's a major difference in climate. It's a major difference in temperature. The difference between Iran and Iraq can be very distinct at times. Uh, but we see the Medians really remain on their own to the east for most of the larger Mesopotamian history we've been discussing. But there's no doubt they are powerful and they are present. And very, very quickly, as the Neo-Babylonian Empire begins to grow, they want to stake out some claims for themselves as well. They begin to move into the Mesopotamian world. 
Now, where does Cyrus come from? Well, Cyrus is not Median. He's not one of the Medes, uh, and he's not Babylonian. But Cyrus comes from a very small royal domain in the southern portion of the Iranian Peninsula, from a place called Anshan. Anshan, if you saw it today, is a hilariously small place for such a very big and very powerful figure to emerge from. Anshan was a walled city in southern Iran, uh, and it was an agricultural city. If you go there today, all you'll see is a very small town with people still growing their own food, still trying to scratch out a living. There is a large amount of archaeology that certainly needs to be done in Anshan, but the modern residents probably have an issue with digging up their fields because, you know, they'd like to eat and feed their children. So we certainly understand that. But it also goes to show how history really layers upon itself in a place like Iran and Mesopotamia. And it's very hard for us in the Western mind to separate the needs of the modern with the needs of the past. But Anshan as a very small town, again dominated by this very huge Median Empire in Iran, was first conquered or first controlled by a figure with, again, no surprise, two names. Uh, typically in history, we call him Tispis, or otherwise, uh, the Greeks would call him Chishpish. But whoever you want to scratch this out, this man is the great-grandfather of the person that will become Cyrus the Great. Tispis, or Chishpish, is the man who is originally recognized as the king of this relatively small city-state, known as Anshan. Chishpish will have a son, uh, and the lineage will pass to him. And again, all the while this is happening, Anshan is really an auxiliary or a tributary of the Median Empire of Iran to their north. Now, the reason we begin with Chishpish or Tispis, whatever you would like to call him, again, it's a matter of the Greek name or his original Persian name. We start with him because he's the first person labeled as King of Anshan. But we know he's not the first person in his lineage. His father, we think, was a figure named Achaemenes. Achaemenes. And Achaemenes will be a major figure as we go down in history, not because of necessarily what he does, but because this entire ruling family dynasty of Cyrus will take his name. They'll take the name the Achaemenids. So Achaemenes, the Achaemenids, I want you to know where that comes from. But real political domain and true traceable political power really doesn't emerge until we see Tispis in about the 7th century BCE. Tispis is the first person to be called King of Anshan, and he certainly won't be the last, because his descendants will carry that name. So we like to start the royal lineage there. His son will be named Cyrus I, and he too will be recognized as King of Anshan. This is not our Cyrus, and Anshan is still a very small, very relatively meaningless place in the grander scheme of this imperial drama between the Medians of Iran, the Neo-Babylonians, and the Lydians. Cyrus I will have a son who will become king of Anshan. His name will be Cambyses I. And from there, our story really picks up. Because Cambyses I will take a wife, and his wife's name will be Mandana. Now, who is Mandana? This is critically important for us. Cambyses will marry a woman who is the daughter 
of the king of the Median Empire. The king of the Median Empire is named Artiagus. But the daughter of Artiagus, Mandana, will be the wife of the king of Anshan. Now keep in mind the balance of power here. Anshan, very small, very weak city-state. The Median Empire, the single biggest empire at the time, maybe not the most powerful, but certainly having the biggest landmass of the region. Bigger than the Neo-Babylonian Empire, bigger than the Egyptians, bigger than the Lydians. We talked about the fact that marriage is a very sound and, and often used diplomatic tool at the time period, unheard of by today's standards. But nothing says, I want to be your friend, I want to do business with you, I want to have a good relationship with you between two monarchs, between two kings, like one person marrying the other's daughter. It ensures her, her survival, it brings honor to her family, uh, it brings sometimes considerable fortune to the husband's family. But most importantly, and this is why they do it, it builds a strong bond uh, diplomatically between two major powers. So Cambyses I, king of Anshan, grandson of Chishpish, son of Cyrus I, uh, will do this to ensure uh, the survival of the very small and very insignificant city-state of Anshan in the future. This woman, Mandana, will be a major player in the future because of what she and her husband produce. Aside from building stable dynastic succession, aside from taking Anshan now into the, what we could say, 6th century BCE, what we really see being most important in the grander scheme of history is that Cambyses I and his median wife, Mandana, have a child. And that child will be named Cyrus. Eventually, he'll be Cyrus the Great. He's named after his paternal grandfather. Remember the line of descent. It went Chishpish, Cyrus, Cambyses, Cyrus. Believe it or not, Cyrus the Great will have a son named Cambyses as well. So it's an alternating structure named after their paternal grandfather. But this is the world that Cyrus the Great is born into. And he's born really straddling the line. Two different worlds, two different responsibilities, and two different obligations at the same time. He's 50% Achaemenid, right? He's the king of Anshan. But his mother was 100% Median. So he's 50% Median as well. And very quickly, it's becoming to look like uh, he's going to have to make a decision as what role he's going to have on the Iranian plateau itself. Will he remain subservient to the Medians like everyone in his family had before? Or will he try to carve out a name for himself in the future? Well, the story goes back to his mother's father. We talked about him, Artiagus uh, of the Median Empire. Artiagus knows his grandson is Cyrus. But he also has a vision. There is a prophecy. He believes he'll be killed by that grandson when the grandson is old enough to do it. So what we're finding is that very common in the ancient world, uh, the basic elements and the basic tenets uh, of royal dynastic succession, the politics of that power, we can say, really take hold with the birth of the young Cyrus. Will he allow that young man to grow into manhood? Or will he eliminate the threat altogether uh, by striking him down in his youth? He will opt to assassinate the young Cyrus the Great. 
Now, the man who's assigned with the task of assassination is a member of the Median royal court named Harpagus. Now, Harpagus is conflicted about what to do. He knows he has to eliminate this threat to his king, but he also knows this threat is the grandson of the very king he serves. Well, the long story short is Harpagus actually is a very noble person. He's a very decent human being. He doesn't kill the young Cyrus. But as a punishment for that, his own king, Artiagus, the grandfather of the, of the targeted Cyrus, makes Harpagus pay, uh, as the legend goes, by tricking him into eating his own chopped up and boiled son. Uh, pretty gruesome and terrible stuff, but that's the ancient world. Now, we don't know how much of this is actually true. All of this comes from the history of the Greek historian Herodotus, but that's how the story goes. So, obviously, Harpagus is not going to be a big fan of his royal overlord much longer. Well, that's how the story will continue. Cyrus will grow into a man, his father Cambyses I will die, and he will become the new king of, again, the very modest and small city-state of Anshan. Well, when this happens, Cyrus, now as king, has to make a decision. Does he accept the overlordship? of his grandfather, the Median Empire, Artiagus, Or does he try to stake his own claim? Harpagus now will arrive, and Harpagus will tell Cyrus the story of what happened. He'll talk about his own personal desire for vengeance after Artiagus killed his son, and he'll talk about the plan to assassinate Cyrus, which he didn't carry out. Harpagus, the story goes, will convince Cyrus that now is the time to attack Artiagus, to gain revenge, but more importantly, attack and conquer his empire. And that's no small feat, because again, Anshan is a very small place. The Median Empire is the largest in terms of land political force in the region. Cyrus, however, as new king, as a young king, will opt to attack. And that's where the real story and the real birth of the Persian Empire begins. The attack on the Median Empire will begin in the year 553 BCE, and it'll basically be over in four years by 549 BCE. Uh, it seems almost counterintuitive to us in the modern age to see such a very large and very powerful and very pronounced empire like the Medians conquered in only four years. But we have to take away the direct association of size and control of a landmass with effective political control. Because in reality, as we'll see from Cyrus's conquest, he really only has to fight a few pitched battles and capture one major city. In the year 549, the city of Ecbatana will fall. That's the capital city of the Median world, at least one of the capital cities of the Median world. And when Ecbatana falls, that, eff that effectively gives Cyrus control of the entire empire. It gets back to the discussion we had about how empires control their subjects. Remember, the Median Empire is vast. It's hundreds of thousands of square miles. Most of the people they control are not ethnically Median. Most of the people don't speak their language. They don't worship their gods. And quite frankly, if the Medians didn't control them, they probably just assume somebody else would. So, empires are funny things. They look really big on paper. If you make a map, it's an expansive control. But how much control do you really have? Because remember, all of those people really just want to be on their own in some way, shape, or form anyway. But a lot of them are also conciliatory. If the mediums don't control us, someone else will. 
when in the future we talk about Alexander the Great conquering the vast and mighty Persian Empire, he will learn this as well. Uh, land-based control, land-based tally doesn't necessarily uh, translate to actual political control on the ground. Cyrus knew that by capturing one of the capital cities of the Median Empire, Ecbatana, and actually making it one of his own new capital cities, he effectively accomplished his entire goal very, very quickly. Now, where does the name Persia come from? Because at the time, remember, Cyrus was the king of Anshan. Persia was not that little city-state that Anshan was, but Persia was actually probably the name of the entire region. So early on, even though we can say Cyrus conquers the entire Iranian plateau, yes, he does adopt the name King of Persia, uh, but that wasn't because he renamed the landscape, because he also keeps his title King of Anshan as well, and that's something he'll never give up. He's very proud of that. That's his family lineage. But Persia's probably the entire region at the time. You could have said that Artiagus, uh, the king of the Medians, was technically the king of Persia as well. That probably was the case. It wasn't the notion that with the Achaemenid family, with Cyrus's direct line of descent from Anshan, the Persian name goes with them. But by 549, Cyrus has built one of the largest empires in history in history, with very few actual battles as a relatively young man. So it's a powerful statement already as to who Cyrus is and what he's capable of. The entirety, the whole of the Iranian plateau belongs to him. But the beautiful thing about Cyrus was he really understood how control would manifest itself in the ancient world. He understood that Yes, you had a capital city, and yes, you had a claim to a large landmass, but he also understood that that landmass was a very weak claim, and you could easily conquer large pieces of territory by having major key victories. He had success in conquering the Medians, something no one had done in the history of the Iranian plateau at the time. He set his sights moving west. Now, there are two major targets to the west, and these are the remaining two targets of the ancient world. One uh, is the Lydians, probably the weaker of the two targets. And the second is the Neo-Babylonian Empire itself, the true base of power and culture and success in the region. Remember, these are very different people than Cyrus's people. They're not ethnically the same. They don't speak the same language. They don't have the same religion. They don't have the same values. They don't have the same practices. The Lydians and the Neo-Babylonians were day and night from each other. And certainly... Certainly, uh, very different than the Persians themselves. So for Cyrus, this was very much about conquering a foreign peoples. This was about war with an alien group. This is a group that was completely out of his political domain, a domain that he desperately wanted to capture. Now, when it comes to Cyrus's conquest of Lydia, we have some serious problems that we have to address as historians and archaeologists. One of them is we don't know exactly how it went down, and we don't know exactly how long his attack on Lydia lasted. Because we have a major gaping hole in the literature there. The archaeological remains don't give us those exact dates. We do know when he begins his next attack, however, so we have to, through an educated guess, assume he conquered Lydia in the time between his conquer of the Median Empire and his first attack on the Neo-Babylonian Empire. But at any rate, we can talk a little bit about Lydia Lydia to at least give a better sense of what that 
second major power base in the region looked like. Lydia was under the control of a man named Croesus, uh, and his domain was what we think of as today the modern nation of Turkey. In the history of the ancient world, we tend to call this space either Anatolia or Asia Minor. But Asia Minor, Anatolia, the modern state of Turkey, they're really interchangeable when you're talking about them. In the context of the ancient world, though, it's much more preferable to use Anatolia or Asia Minor. But what you need to know about this landmass is that, yes, it's very distinct in size and shape, but there are some very unique features in Anatolia geomorphologically that don't really exist anywhere else in the region. Babylonia is a very flat, dry place. It's the desert. Again, only around the two rivers can you really have a flourishing society. The rest is very flat, very hot, very arid desert. In Iran, a little bit different. You do have areas of arid desert, but you also have mountains and you also have areas of very lush green territory. It's a very big place, so climatically and geomorphologically, uh, it's very different. Anatolia, though, is unique in the region because of its very rocky and craggy uh, landscape. It's a place where, again, if you have mountains, you also have other varieties of ore and minerals. So you have a lot of things that are very conducive to metalworking. You have copper, you have tin, you have uh, a large amount of, of mineral wealth. So it's a very different place. Um, all of these places we tend to group together as one, but that isn't necessarily the case all the time. So Lydia is a major conquest for Cyrus, because if he can capture it, he now has full access to all of that mineral wealth and natural resources we've talked about. You have to remember, an empire, in its very existence, lives to serve the metropole, not the other way around. That means, as Cyrus conquers new foreign territories, he doesn't live to serve those territories. They live to serve him. In Persia, you have some mineral wealth, you have some natural resources that can be used in metalworking, but not enough, not like you'd have in Anatolia. Whenever Cyrus is conquering them, he's not only thinking, now I have all of these people to control, but he's thinking now all of the goods and resources and cultural additions that they have can come directly to me and make me more powerful. Lydia will fall, certainly, by 542 BCE. So what we can say is in just 12 years, Cyrus, this king of Anshan, this very small, very modest, very insignificant city-state, has now conquered two of the three largest empires in the ancient world. The Medians fell in four years. It took him another six, maybe seven, to conquer the Lydians. So what Cyrus is doing is not only venturing into new territories, but he's spreading his way of life into those new territories as well. And he's expanding this very eastern Persian world that's always existed in the ancient world, but it never really came to pass too much with the uh, greater Babylonian Near East. And he's making it one molded culture. He's making it one unified place. Remember, the Persian Empire will stretch in the east as far as India. In the west, as far as Egypt, and even parts of the European continent as we know it. That's not done easily. You have to have a system that works for you. And we can say Cyrus is right now in the process of learning what that system is. 
The real target, though, the real heart of his conquest, will have to be the real base of power and wealth and prestige uh, and advancement and culture in the region, and that, of course, is the city of Babylon. And we know who's there, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It's worth talking about what's going on in Babylon at the time to give you a better sense of why Cyrus behaves the way that he does when he conquers. But what we can say is, if you are the emperor of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, Nabopolassar, we talked about these people, you're considered by many to be probably one of, if not the most powerful people in the world. The Babylonians, at the time, believed they were the most important people in the world. They believed their city was the greatest city in the world. They believed everyone else was beneath them. I mean, it's a very real thing when they talk about it. It's not indifferent to the way that many people who live in one of the world's superpowers feel today. Everyone else, for whatever reason, yes, their army might be bigger, yes, their kingdom might be bigger, but they're not superior. That was the belief of the Babylonians. And therefore, if you are the uh, the king of the Babylonian world, if you're the emperor, you should be first and foremost a patriot, a nationalist. You should love the Babylonian world. You should be your own biggest fan. Well, for most of their existence, that's what you saw. Life was good. But recently, in the Neo-Babylonian world, things not so much. Uh, and that came from the fact that their king, a man named Nabonidus, really kind of turned his back on his own people. When you're the king, you have a lot of obligations, you have a lot of responsibilities. One of them is that on the Babylonian New Year, you venture to the great temple in Babylon, and you perform a series of rituals. These rituals allow, you know, for a good harvest, uh, good rain, good farming, uh, good soil, uh, a prosperous new year. That was your obligation. In fact, it was a sacred obligation. And certainly the most in the minds of the Babylonians, the most critical obligation that the king should have. Well, Nabonidus doesn't participate in this. And this has to do with his personal background. His mother worshipped a minor god uh, who wasn't really a, a, an enormously powerful figure in the minds of the Babylonian world. Their god, the god that made their world go round, was called Marduk. And Marduk, in his temple, needed to be revered and worshipped at the beginning of the new year. Uh, well, Nabonidus doesn't do that. He spends most of his time building temples to this other minor god. And he's angering a lot of his own people along the way. Now, how much power do they have about that? Well, they can't vote him out, but he's certainly not popular. When it comes time for the Babylonian New Year, no surprise, Nabonidus never participates. So now his people are thinking they're going to have an unfortunate year uh, ahead of them because he's not doing this. So Nabonidus, not a popular man. Uh, and this is the, the style of leadership you have at the time when Cyrus first sets his sights on the Neo-Babylonian world. By 540 BC, Cyrus will move into Neo-Babylonian territory, and he'll capture the city of Susa. Susa is an enormous city. It's a powerful city. He makes it one of his many capital cities. It can be confusing as we go through this, uh, but in our world today, we have one capital city. You know, that's a rule that we set. But if you think about it, who says you need to have one? Uh, Cyrus wants to have many. In most parts of the ancient world, you would see many capital cities because, you know, two is better than one. And for that matter, seven 
is better than one. That's basically the rule with capital cities. But at any rate, we see the real conquest of Babylon begin. Now the military campaign of the conquest will start in early October of 540 BCE, but this whole thing will be wrapped up by the end of that same month. That's an amazing statistic. It takes a very short amount of time for Cyrus to conquer the empire considered to be the single greatest in the world. How does he do it? This is the real brilliance of Cyrus the Great. This is where we really see his style of leadership emerge. Whenever Cyrus conquers Babylon, he does not enter the city and say, I, Cyrus of Persia, king of Anshan, king of the Medes, king of Lydia, am conquering your empire. He doesn't carry that tone because he understands the political frustration of the Babylonians at the time. He understands that they have a king who they don't feel represents them and who they don't feel has their best interests at heart. So Cyrus, when he enters Babylon, never says, I am Cyrus the conqueror, but he says, I am Cyrus the liberator. I'm here to end the reign of Nabonidus and eliminate this king from your world. And because of that, the people of Babylon welcome him, not as a villain, but as a hero. It's really an amazing thing. But again, it's politics. Cyrus understands the situation of the people he's conquering. Now, what does he do? Well, remember the major point of contention between the Babylonian people and Nabonidus was Nabonidus' refusal to carry out his sacred rituals in the temple in the middle of the city. Well, you can imagine what Cyrus does next. He marches to the temple of Marduk, and he declares Marduk a supreme god. He goes through the rituals that the king should go through to ensure a prosperous new year, and the people of Babylon love him for it. We know this is the case, because the people of Babylon will continuously call Cyrus father. They'll call him king, they'll call him father. They believe that he is a benevolent spirit that came to save him. Now it's also in this that we begin to see one of the great stories of Cyrus in modern history. And the story comes from a much earlier decision made by a much earlier decision Neo-Babylonian king to deal with rebellions in his empire. And We talked about this briefly, but it's worth a refresher. When Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, he had a number of rebellions to deal with, and one of the areas that was particularly rebellious was the region of Judah, with its capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's about 598 when this is happening. And what Nebuchadnezzar will do is take the rebellious population of Judah and Jerusalem, uh, and he'll deport them from their city. He certainly came to the conclusion that these people will always be rebellious. I can only suppress them so many times. Why not eliminate the problem once and for all? He deports the people of the city, and he holds them captive in Babylon. Again, the idea is get them out of their element, put them in a foreign world, make them feel alienated, separate them from their families, keep them captive, and their rebellious tendencies will go away. The people he relocated out of Jerusalem, the Israelites, would become the Jews during this time period uh, that they were forced to remain captive in Babylon. Well, they had stayed there for generations, and by the time Cyrus conquers, and he really begins to understand what's going on in Babylon, we'll see one of the really incredible moments in the ancient world occur. 
Uh, and what Cyrus will do is take these people, these subjugated people, and he'll release them. He'll free them. He'll send them back to their homeland. And the stories we get out of Cyrus's decision to free the captives, to free the Jewish captives of Babylon, really uh, go down in history for a lot of reasons uh, and make him one of the more revered people in the history of the Judeo-Christian world. You can see references to Cyrus in a number of places. Now, in truth, we have relatively little information about him archaeologically. In Babylon, it was discovered something called what we call the Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, was an inscription, 44 lines, talking about the life and achievements of Cyrus. Most of what we know comes from that archaeological evidence. But there's other uncommon references we can find of Cyrus in the ancient world as well. One of them is my favorite historic source of all, the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, you have this passage. I want to read it because I think it's a very heavy passage. It references Cyrus's release of the Jews and their feelings toward him as a result. The book of Isaiah 45.1 says this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. That might not seem like a big deal to you, but think about what it just said. Thus says the Lord to his anointed one, to Cyrus. The word that the, that the Jews would have used for anointed one, by today's standard, would be Messiah. Take a moment and think about the enormity of that word. Think about the enormity of that concept. Cyrus the Great, this conquering politician, is called Messiah. Very few people, needless to say, are given that name in that book. But there, in Scripture, is the proof that we need. Now, again, we don't know a lot about Cyrus from the sources. We have to use what we can. The Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus being one of the critical elements and the critical historians of the first century Jewish world, gives us this little bit of information about his actions upon freeing the Jews. Josephus writes, uh, and this is supposedly, in his words, a copy of a letter Cyrus wrote to the Jews themselves before their release. I have given leave to as many of the Jews that dwell in my country as please to return to their own country, and to rebuild their city, and to build their temple of God at Jerusalem. I have also sent my treasurer and governor of the Jews, that they may lay the foundations of the temple. I require also that the expenses for these things may be given out of my revenues. Now, hold the phone there. According to Josephus, what he's saying is not only did Cyrus release the Jews from captivity and allow them to return to Jerusalem, but out of his own personal wealth, He's funding the reconstruction of the destroyed city of Jerusalem, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar generations earlier, and more importantly, the construction of the holiest site in the Jewish world, the building of the second temple that was also destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar generations earlier. So what an amazing figure. Now you can be perhaps cynical about this. You can be realistic about this. You can say that, well, uh, all Cyrus really desired was a buffer state between the Egyptian world, which was out of his reach, uh, and his own new 
Persian Empire. He wanted somebody in between loyal to him. You could say that, and you know, maybe that was even the case. But in my mind, so what? He still did it. He still released these people and funded their rebuilding. So we can't minimize this. As I said earlier on in the, in the, in the episode, very few people deserve to be called the great. I really think Cyrus is one of them. Now, the rest of the story for Cyrus is a bit unfortunate because what he'll do is have big plans for conquering the rest of this territory he sees before him. Uh, he already controls the Median world. He already controls the Lydian world, and his greatest conquest was the Neo-Babylonian world. But he's not done yet, because he knows Egypt is right around the corner. And he also knows that the Greek civilization is emerging also in Europe. All of these things are on his mind. But don't forget, he's conquering west as well as east. And to the east, there's a nomadic, rebellious group of people, very unruly in Cyrus's mind known as the Scythians, and the Scythians have to be dealt with. Cyrus will venture to fight these people, very rough, very raw, compared to the troops he's been fighting along the way, and in modern Kazakhstan, he'll be killed in battle. Now, what does that mean? Well, Cyrus did something that no one has ever done in the history of the world. He's unified three major river valleys, the Indus, the Mesopotamian, and the Nile River Valley. He's built, in one lifetime, the largest empire in world history. And when considered that that lifetime was really cut short, who knows what else he could have done. We know he was planning an invasion of Egypt that he never got to see. But Cyrus will die in battle. Who knows how much more he could have accomplished. But Cyrus is an interesting figure. The tomb of Cyrus can still be found at the capital city he built called Pasargard. And for being the master and ruler of the world as he knew it, it's a very modest tomb. Uh, it's about 36 feet high. It's a series of steps with a very modest, small chamber on the top of it. People still go there today to revere Cyrus. Cyrus has become something of a countercultural figure in Iran today amongst the youth. Uh, the government of Iran tends to be uh, very conservative, tends to be very rigid. The young people of Iran not necessarily on the same page. So they go to Cyrus's tomb to revere and celebrate their past, more so than maybe some of the uh, more recent history their government would like them to. But at any rate, what we have at the end of Cyrus is the largest empire the world's ever seen. Who inherits that empire and what they do with it is for another episode. Thank you for joining me. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.